0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today, we're talking financials.
1: Today, we're talking consumer goods.
0: Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today, we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, April 12th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we're going to dig into some of the takeaways from Jamie Dimon's recent letter to shareholders. And believe it or not, folks, but Earnings Palooza is upon us. Big banks, as always, will lead the way. So, we'll take a look at what investors should be watching for these upcoming earnings reports. Joining me, as always, is Certified Financial Planner and apparently Monster Truck Rally guy, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Pretty good. It seems like earnings season just wrapped up, doesn't it? It does, it does, but I think Emily, you know Emily, <laughs> Emily Flippins said something that was it was just very, very on on point last week for Monthly Full Money, and I I can't remember if it was on the show or if it was in the the uh, the conversation afterwards, but she said something to the extent of just time is meaningless. <laughs> time has just become a it, you just it, 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 it's impossible to even really wrap your head around time anymore. It feels like because yeah, it does feel like it just. It does feel like earnings balloons are just wrapped up, but here we are.
1: It's it's yeah, upon it, us. That's somewhat true in the, the second quarter because I, mean, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with this, but the first quarter earnings are, or I'm sorry, fourth quarter earnings are always reported along with year end earnings. So they take a little while longer. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, some like um, one company that we follow a lot, uh, Boston Omaha, just reported um, their first quarter earnings last week, I believe, <laughs> <laughs> or their the fourth quarter earnings. And now, you know, the first quarter is already over. Yep, yep. So
0: we are already in the second quarter. So it's a good, good good thing to remember there. Current quarter is the second quarter. So, uh, well, Matt, let's let's go ahead and kick off this week's show with uh something I, I feel I've been looking forward to talking with you about this because I was able to read through this last week. Last week, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon published his letter to shareholders. Uh, I I would put his letter in a small group of letters that I think all all investors really should consider reading I mean I think you look at you look at letters from folks like Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway right Jeff Bezos with the Amazon um, I, I think Markel's letter to shareholders Tom Gaynor, is always a, a, a fun one to read as well um, JP Morgan Jamie Dimon, he' left no no stone unturned this year it seemed this was this was a, a very in-depth uh missive, but but really helpful from a number of different angles. So I I guess I mean you can you can take this in whatever direction you want, Matt, but we really wanted to try to pull pull three main takeaways from this letter uh for investors. And I'll go ahead and let you take it take it from here, but but let's let's talk what what were some of the takeaways from this letter that you feel like matter for investors?
1: Well, you, you weren't kidding that he covered a lot in this letter. Um, I mean, you said you you sat and read it, read the whole thing this weekend. I did. You get the hardcover or the the softcover edition of this book?
0: <laughs> I was thinking about trying to put it on my Kindle, but then I ended up just reading it on my computer screen. Through.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was it's quite a letter. It was sixty six pages. So, um, just to put that in contrast, Buffett's letter was about twenty pages, and more than half of it was just you know general financial discussions about the business. So it it, this was a long letter. He really left no stone unturned. So it was kind of the point is it was kind of tough to narrow down just three things to talk about. Jason gave me quite a challenge with that one. (laughs) That's fair. Um, But so I think the biggest takeaway from our point of view is his thoughts about fintech. Um, Basically, he said he pointed out that over the past ten or ten to twenty years, fintech has just become such a disruptive force in the financial industry. Um, just to kind of name a couple of things, he said, private credit, meaning that credit loans and things like that that happen outside the banking system, have gone from 7.6 trillion dollars in 20 in 2000 to 18.4 trillion dollars in 2020. That's you know well over doubled. Um, all these fintech lenders are you know making personal loans, and you can get an auto loan without going through a bank now, and things like that. Um, The market cap of public and private fintech companies is roughly 800 billion dollars right now. That was a it was a negligible amount in 2010, just 10 years ago, 10 years before um, the end of last year. So it was negligible, like it was listed as zero in in the letter. Um, So this is good and bad. Diamond views this as an enormous competitive threat to banks, and he should. He absolutely should. I mean, how much business do you think banks have lost because of companies like, say, Lending Club? It's 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 got to only be getting worse. Or SoFi, or Square, or or PayPal. Um, I mean, Square Capital, the business lending side of the business. Square is, now they are a bank, they've just recently became a bank, but they weren't. Um, and they made billions of dollars of loans without a banking charter, um, and that took money away from banks like J.P. Morgan. Um, so Diamond views this as kind of a a negative trend in a way. Now, take that with a grain of salt. He's somewhat biased.
0: Yeah, negative for whom?
1: <laughs> right. So, but he th- he's trying to say that it's negative for the 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 market and the economy and the consumer. Um the traditional banking system, especially large banks, he views as more stable sources of credit. Um, you know, as i mentioned earlier he was ceo of jp morgan chase during the financial crisis during a time like that who was loaning money to consumers credit definitely kind of dried up a little bit but the big banks were still making loans i mean my parents bought a house in 2009 had no trouble getting a mortgage they went with a big bank to do it um the the you know the, during every the entire credit cycle there's a history of just big banks making being the providers of credit to the market and that you could really especially make that case now that after the financial crisis, banks are required to maintain such high capital levels and really take care to be able to survive any type of recession. You know, um, we met, I mentioned during COVID, um, there, there was kind of another level of stress test that was applied to the bank to see how, the, how they would do. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: If you remember that in like a really adverse scenario. So, you know, fintechs aren't subject to that. Who's to say that I mean, PayPal and Square are you know, kind of their own little animal, but one of these kind of startup lenders or or um, these kind of the fintechs that are just kind of getting there, getting into the growth mode. Who's to say that they would survive a, a terrible downturn?
0: Well, it, I I mean, you you make I think you make a, a really good point there, and one worth digging into because if you if you recall in the letter he he put out he put out this chart this this. Chart that compared banks versus fintech and and non-banks, and and it was it was they were, he was comparing the regulatory requirements, and and so I, I wanted to get into that with you a little bit because I mean on the on the one hand I mean yeah fintech and, and the a, a lot of a lot of the the services and companies that are being born from this fintech movement are really. Encouraging, right? I mean this this is a this is a really amazing time from a number of different perspectives. It's opening up all sorts of different avenues uh, in the world of finance, particularly for consumers that we haven't seen really ever. And and a lot of that, though, if you think about a lot of these fintechs, and I mean, you look at Square, you look at PayPal. Let's let's take PayPal for example. Um, PayPal being a, a company that, right, they partner with, with a, a financial institution, right? They partner with Synchrony Bank, for example, um, in, in order to be able to underwrite uh, lending in certain cases and whatnot. Square, like you said, until they actually got their bank charter, that was a little bit of a different animal altogether. But, but the idea basically that when you're a bank, I mean, you're beholden to capital regulations, capital ratios um, that, that just simply don't exist for fintechs and non banks. I mean, I would recommend anyone just to take a look at that chart and that letter because it's it's just food for thought, right? I think it can help shape the conversation of how you feel like the the space may evolve in the coming years. Because while I love the convenience and in, in the the innovation from a lot of these fintechs, I also ask myself the questions If if we run into some sort of protracted downturn, I mean, these fintech companies, they really don't have any of these regulatory requirements they have to worry about. I mean, there's no liquidity requirements. There's no real operational risk capital right there. They don't have the same capital requirements, uh, less costly regulations. I mean, so it it just makes you wonder. I mean, there is a place in the world for banks that fintechs and non-banks can't really fully fill, right? They they can't fill that void that banks are, are are currently filling yet.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll get to the regulation side in a second, because that's actually my second takeaway from the letter. Um but having said that, you, you mentioned the capital requirements for traditional banks really make them more more transparent, safer providers of credit, I guess you'd say from the market standpoint. Um it's also worth mentioning that in recent times it's been really easy for hot startups to raise money. Yeah. Um I mean, look at SoFi. SoFi is going public through a SPAC merger and raised billions of dollars in the process. Um, that really helps some of these businesses compete and really provides them the capital to make loans and things like that. Um, so they just uh, acquired a bank, SoFi, um, and were able to pump seven hundred million dollars of their own capital into it to to, to boost it up. Um, it's been really easy to raise money. A lot of these fintechs are not profitable. Um, in a downturn. It will not be as easy to raise money. We mentioned last week when we were talking about why the SPAC boom has dried up, that at some point investors' appetite for speculation starts to run out. That's especially true if the economy takes a turn for the worse. Um, another thing that Jamie Dimon said, this wasn't my one of my big takeaways, but that inflation is very possible and a, a series of rapid interest rate increases often leads to a recession. In a recession, the fintech industry wouldn't nearly be as stable as it is right now. Um, I'm not saying that com- that you know all these companies we were just talking about are gonna f- would fail in a recession or anything to that effect. Right. Yeah. But they wouldn't necessarily be as great providers of credit to the system as traditional banks would be.
0: Yeah. I mean that stability just isn't there. It's it's neither right nor wrong. It just is. I mean they 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 live in two different worlds right now, and 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 I think that's just. That, to me, is what makes, that's what shapes that conversation. That's what makes that that conversation, I think, so enlightening for investors, the way that you kind of think about how that future may look. Is it one being replaced by the other, or are we ultimately looking at a future of partnerships, I wonder?
1: Right. That's, that's a definitely a good, um, it's a good question, <laughs> one that I don't have the answer to, and it, Jamie Diamond doesn't really either. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the regulation thing I wanted to kind of pivot to, because that's really, the other side of the equation, fintechs have the adva- the clear advantage over traditional banks when it comes to regulation right now. If you don't have a banking charter, there's certain things you don't have to do. Um, and uh, Jamie Dimon, in his letter, he wrote, he made a table with 11 different disadvantages banks have compared to these fintechs, um, just to kind of name a few. I'm not going to read the entire chart, but banks have to buy FDIC insurance to protect depositors. Right now, if you're, if I, I think you mentioned that you're a Wells Fargo customer, if I'm not, if I'm remembering that right. Uh, no, we're Bank of America. Oh, Bank of America, that's right. Yeah. So if Bank of America, let's just say they went out of business tomorrow, you're, you're, the money in your savings account is fine because they have FDIC insurance. FDIC insurance cost JP Morgan $12 billion over the last decade. That's something a fintech doesn't have to have. Um, high capital requirements, even on deposits which costs banks to, to get that capital, banks are paying interest on it. FinTechs don't have those capital requirements. They're just kind of set by whatever their business dictates. Um, a lot of liquidity requirements. They have to keep a certain amount of liquid assets on hand. Um, you know, The last thing any bank wants or the banking system wants is people not being able to get their deposits. If you have a million dollars in your bank account, you need to be able to walk into a bank and withdraw a million dollars in cash if you wanted to. The banking system needs to support that. Not that that's a good idea as your financial <laughs> planner. Don't don't do that. But it needs to be a possibility. Otherwise, that leads to a panic. This is where the, you know a big cause of the panic of '29 um, was people couldn't get their money out of banks quickly enough. You know, the big run on the banks. Um, re, you know, just regulatory compliance costs that the banks have. Um, I, I mean, I could go on. There's a ton of these listed here. But if you add up all these costs that JPMorgan said they've had that fintechs don't. You're talking just ballpark napkin, back of the napkin calculation. You're looking at like fifty billion dollars of costs that they've had over the past decade that a fintech would not have. That's significant. So that's very significant. So what Jamie Dimon says is that we need to really level the playing field. Not that fintech innovation shouldn't be encouraged. He absolutely thinks they should be. It should be encouraged. We need innovation. We need better ways to do to move money around and better ways to win and. I mean that's a big part of a lot of our investment theses that we say here when we when we have a, when we talk about our fintech our favorite fintech companies that's a big part of it is that we need this stuff, but the big banks shouldn't be at that much of a disadvantage. It should be we should be encouraging fintech innovation from all sides, including from the traditional banks. Is kind of his point of view.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it. It really. It makes you wonder how much, <laughs> and I, I mean, I don't know if there was any history behind this or not, but how much they must re- regret not making at least a couple of shrewd acquisitions earlier on in the game to to be a little bit more uh, ahead. I mean, I you know, I mean, I think most of us would would agree. I mean, J P Morgan, one of the one of the top performing banks out there. I mean, it's just it's it's. That's a, a bank with a stellar reputation, not only as a bank, but but really, I think from an investor's point of view as well. And imagine, had they been able to make uh, you know, an acquisition, a meaningful acquisition, bought Square three years ago or four years ago or something like that to, to really add to that toolbox, right? to add some of that tech ammunition, um, it, it could put them in a little bit of a different place. But I mean, it, it, just back to your point though, real quick, it, it, it is not it's not fintech is a bad thing and it's not fair it's like you have to recognize that the banks had the banks have something that the fintechs don't and, and the fintechs have something that the banks don't um, there's there's a lot to be said for the stability in in the banking system, thanks to that regulatory environment, thanks to those capital requirements. Um, I mean, that's not just lip service; those are real services. Even if even if consumers don't think about that on a daily basis, that's something real. It exists, and and it also is not free.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like we have a case of great minds think alike here, because Jamie here's a quote from Jamie Dimon. Uh, we have mentioned that our highest and best use of capital is to expand our businesses, and we would prefer to make great acquisitions instead of buying back stock. Well, given how much money that JP Morgan in, in a normal year spends on buying back stock, you're talking like in the tens of billions of dollars. You know, so it sounds like they're in the mindset that acquisitions, like you said, they're, I, I agree with you that they're kind of late to the party. They probably should have like acquired a square or something like that back in you know like 2012 2013 when they could have done it for nothing um you know cuz a, a lot of very smart acquisitions were made there in that time frame um but unfortunately most of the big banks kind of missed out on that in my opinion yeah or um, even
0: i mean look at something like a plaid right i mean visa trying to acquire plaid that got uh that 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 you know that that deal was was shut down but i mean it makes you wonder like why why wouldn't the big bank be looking at Hey, maybe that's an opportunity, but maybe those same maybe
1: those same antitrust concerns keep them on the sideline. I don't know. Maybe I mean one of the companies we talk about, like uh, I think, uh, is it Encino that does the bank operating system? Yeah, that we talked the about? bank operating system software. Yeah, like it, instead of you know paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to this company to provide your operating system, why not acquire it and then provide it to other banks as well? <laughs> kind of you know, I mean I I I. I don't get why there hasn't been more acquisitions in the fintech side of traditional banking. Um, I mean, there, we've seen a great deal of M and A activity between banks, like uh, BB and T and SunTrust. Uh, some of the brokerages have acquired one another in the past few years, but but none of the big banks seem to really be thinking outside the box when it comes to to acquisitions. And it sounds like Jamie Diamond's starting to realize that that was bad thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, hey, better late than never. I mean, maybe, maybe there is still the opportunity to get in there and, and make a, a a meaningful deal, something with a with a big
1: splash. So, pivoting to the last kind of takeaway, and this is kind of a selfish one for me, just because I've been saying this since last March, people are going to work in offices again. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about full HQ. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, <laughs> selfishly, I'd love it, the ability to be open like one day a month so I could come visit. I'll yeah. just put I'll just put that bug in people's ear out, out <laughs> here. Um, but Jamie Diamond seems to be a believer that office work is better. Um, but I mean, I'm not talking about like the branches. Like obviously, there are some aspects of of branch based banking that cannot be done remotely. I'm talking about the office workers the people who work on in their Wall Street offices he he said the bank is still planning to build a brand new headquarters in Manhattan that's obviously a big investment. Um, it's just he said there's a a bunch of weaknesses from the work from home approach including bringing new employees into the mix he said it's really tough to train somebody and and just kind of bring them into the office culture if they've never been to the office yeah yeah, yeah um, absolutely. He said he he cited the, the quote spontaneous learning and creativity. I wanted to get that quote right. That comes from <laughs> that comes from being around your colleagues. I mean there have been times when like there have been years when half the the interesting projects I've gotten to work on at the Motley Fool came from a conversation I had when I was visiting the office. And someone said, "Hey, what do you what do you think of this?" And, and you know, just that spontaneous nature of collaboration. No one's going to have a spontaneous Zoom call how many how many times have I spontaneously called you via Zoom over the past year?
0: I can't think of one.
1: <laughs> right. So it it's just it so he's got a point there, the the spontaneous creativity. I mean, I would go beyond that even and say that, you know, if if you're new in your career, you want to see and be seen by your colleagues and your bosses and things like that. That's really tough to do if you're working remotely.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that old out of sight out of mind and you know, before you could have, have it, it certainly would be understood if you were worried about being a remote worker that you weren't being seen. Um, now, it seems like maybe that is going to be the norm for some folks. I mean, I, I will say, I mean, I, I fully agree with him. I mean, I think we're going to get to a point, it's, uh, it's some sometime here in the next year, two years, whenever. I mean, and it, 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 maybe it materializes differently for different Different companies, but I I think we may get to a point where actually physically working together is seen as a competitive advantage again. I I agree with it totally. I mean, remote work is fine for like stuff that is just automatic and and repetitive tasks, things like that. Just you know, if just. Got a job where buttons need to be hit, and you just got to do this and that, and you just got sort of a routine. But as, as far as collaboration and learning, I mean, like it, just, uh, remote work is just awful for that. It just doesn't, just doesn't work. I mean, I, at least that's, that's my experience over the last year. Um, I talked to a lot of folks in the investing profession that find remote work to be not good for learning and collaboration as well. I think you and I are kind of on the same page there. So to me, I, yeah I, I think he makes a lot of sense there. I think it's why we're seeing companies like Microsoft and Alphabet uh, going ahead and accelerating going back t- to the office now. Um, because clearly we're a place where, where vaccines uh, continue to roll out. I mean the, the risk is is uh, being mitigated uh, each and every day. Um Reed Hastings, another CEO been very clear with his thoughts on this as well so yeah i I tend to agree I mean, I think there are uh, being able to work remotely is is a nice thing to have it's a nice thing to be able to do but but if you're in a job that requires collaboration um ideas developing ideas from the ground up I mean remote work is just very stifling in that regard so i I suspect he's I suspect he's on to something there.
1: Yeah, and I mean, t- to be fair, I'm I'm a believer in the hybrid work model. Yeah, like, I I
0: think that's I think I am with you. I mean, I think the hybrid makes sense. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of I think honestly that's what a lot of places had before this started. Maybe not to the extent. Maybe that hybrid didn't tilt so far over to the virtual side. Um, I mean, I think a lot of places had that 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 option
1: uh, going yeah, into. Yeah, no, I mean, maybe I, I know for a pronounced. fact that the, you know the motley fool like if you had to work from home for a day, it wasn't a big deal.
0: No, I mean it was it was it was absolutely normal.
1: Yeah. So, but I mean, there is there, there's a Zoom can be productive. Being remote can be productive, just as productive as being in the office. You could even make the argument that it's more so in certain ways because you're saving your commute and things like that. You know, you're you're. What did it take you to get to and from the office each day? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. So, there's no drive. That's for sure.
1: So there's that's that's time you could spend getting work done. True, um, but I mean, by the same
0: token, that drive was often spent listening to podcasts or something where I was learning, and that was sort of unencumbered <laughs> time. You know, twenty, twenty five, thirty minutes on the road where I could actually, uh, you know, listen to something and learn, which is it's a little bit different when you're in a house uh, full of all sorts of things going on.
1: But I, I really think the market's been surprised at how many CEOs. Uh, David Solomon from Goldman Sachs is another one. Who, who's mentioned um that he wants people in the office. I mean I, I think the market has been surprised especially and when you when it comes to these tech companies at how eager CEOs are to get people back in the office. Not necessarily all the time. I doubt Google is going to make people work in the office all the time. That's just kind of not what they're about anyway.
0: Well, I mean I, I yeah,
1: I mean who knows
0: how they implement it fully, but yeah, I mean I yeah, to your point, I think uh, the idea yeah, is it, being together more than not.
1: And these are companies that really place value on collaboration, which I think is really the the X factor there. So, I mean, I I think that's a that's a positive catalyst for some of the office real estate companies I follow. Um, oh, I
0: can imagine. I mean the. Uh- we should we should probably do a whole show just on REITs here and talk about the uh, the death of the office it has been greatly exaggerated.
1: Yeah, if only someone
0: had been saying that.
1: All
0: <laughs> I mean, I bet you we could probably scroll back and find a podcast or two here <laughs> or there.
1: But yeah, so th- th- those are kind of my. Biggest takeaways out of the letter, like I said, it was 66 pages. So if I miss something you found really important, don't hold it too much against me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's a good read. Um, it's it's on J.P. Morgan's website if you if you are interested. It's definitely worth a read if you have have the time. Yeah, yeah, good read indeed. I appreciate you digging into it for us. Um, okay, before we
0: wrap up the show, Matt, uh, earnings Palooza, believe it or not, it's here. Um Wednesday we have two reports from JP Morgan and Wells Fargo then oh, on Thursday we have City and Bank of America uh just just you- Take this however you want to take it, but but uh what are some of the things you'll be paying attention to uh this go-round for earnings season? I guess also, you know, I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here in regard to Wells Fargo, just because that is your pick for 2021, Matt. I mean, loyal listeners know that is your that is your financial stock for 2021. But what what has uh what what's
1: piquing your interest here for this this earnings season go around? Well, it's worth mentioning that there's there's a lot that we're not gonna learn. Um we we mentioned in the last show, I believe it was, that they you know banks aren't going to be allowed to re-implement their buybacks or increase dividends till at least June. So you're not going to get news on that front. Um, I don't even think you're really going to get any commentary on on possible sizes of buybacks till after after the stress tests happen this year. Um, so that's something that you're probably not going to get this time. Wells, Wells Fargo is not going to you know raise their dividend back up. Don't I wouldn't count on that. Um, <laughs> But interest rates have started to rise, um, as every tech investor has noticed as a downward catalyst. <laughs> the rotation is real, <laughs> right? So interest rates have started to rise. It started to trickle down to consumer interest rates somewhat. Um, for for example, mortgage rates are no longer at their all time lows. They're you know going up a little bit. So I'm and benchmark interest rates are still at record lows. You know the the federal funds is still at zero. Um, so I'm curious, and most banks are still paying ne- next to zero on deposits. So I'm curious to see if this is starting to trickle into an increase in the bank's net interest margin. That's one thing I'm looking at. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that they could possibly surprise to the upside when it comes to interest margin. Um, <laughs> I'm also curious to see how all that volatility in the first quarter—I mentioned, you know, interest rates started to rise, tech stocks went crazy to the downside for a while. Um, you know interest rates were kind of going all over the place for a little while. I'm curious to see how that translated to trading revenue at a lot of the big uh the investment banking firms especially. Yeah, I know Goldman reports sometime this week as well. I want to say it's also Wednesday. Um but so and uh JP Morgan has a big investment banking division, Bank of America does. That won't affect Wells Fargo so much, but I'm curious to see how that translated into trading revenue because volatility tends to Create a spike in trading revenue and also investment banking revenue. Um, the IPO market was as hot as ever in the first in the first quarter.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. We had a lot of lot of delays there that
1: started trickling through, didn't they? And how many SPACs went public? Oh my word! <laughs> all of the all of those are IPOs. They pay investment banking fees. That's but, a know, They have to be underwritten. Point. So I'm, I want to see how that SPAC boom led to um, investment banking fees. So I'm I think this is going to be a quarter where the investment banks are the stars. Um, But I think that later in the year, we're going to see really the kind of savings and loans like the small banks we mentioned last week and Wells Fargo, which is primarily a, a lending operation. I think those are going to have a great second half of the year, I'd say. Um, after the stress tests come out, they're allowed to buy back stock and interest rates start to normalize and they can finally make some money from lending again. Because um, you know <laughs> when interest rates are almost zero, it's not a great time to be in a business that lends money. No, it is not. No, it is not. And I, I mean, I'm expecting default rates to stay low. Um, you know, the stimulus bills that were passed. You know, unemployment insurance is extended through I think September. Um, the PPP opened a second round. Businesses are are have access to capital now. Um, so I'm not expecting loan default rates to to be any higher than they have been. So I think we're going to see a good quarter in banking. I think the investment banks are the ones that could surprise to the upside.
0: Well, we look forward to digging in,
1: but until then, Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week.
0: Appreciate you taking the time, as always, uh, to enlighten our listeners, and hey, enlighten me too. You know, you said some stuff that I didn't know. Oh, there you go. You said some (laughs) stuff I didn't know too. Well, that's the goal, right? We walk out of here (laughs) learning from each other, and that's always a good thing. Uh, But hey, uh, again, thanks, and look forward to doing it again next week, as always. Remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus, or you can drop us an email at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.